three, two, one. new podcast and accountable america which will be hosted on resolute square uh, a little bit later this spring but even though it isn't up online yet we've been recording a lot of shows with a lot of different guests for that so you know we've been averaging two or three shows a week uh, for the past month and so that's kept me really busy and i've been spending a lot of time uh, getting that show prepared uh, and ready to go and, and interviewing guests and co-hosting and producing and so that's taken up a lot of time, and I haven't been able to do this show, uh, the, the Kentucky Caliber podcast, which I wanted to because there's a lot going on. And so we, we got a break there. We actually had a, um, a guest that had to reschedule this morning, and so that gave me a little bit of uh, extra time on my <laughs> calendar that I wasn't expecting. And I, I'm going to have a chance to use that to, uh, to talk about a couple of things that I wanted to uh, discuss that we would have discussed with our guest uh, on the show and, um, you know, this being the one-year anniversary of the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that was going to be the topic for our, our guest on the other podcast, not this podcast. That would have been on, on the VFRL show. Um, we have Admiral Stavridis, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, lined up, and he had to reschedule uh, for it looks like the, the week of March 6 now. So hopefully we'll get, this, uh, get back in touch with him in a couple weeks. But um, what we're going to be talking about was the situation in Ukraine and its significance and why we're talking about that. Um, I had a chance to be on the uh, WVLK 590 AM as a guest on the Jack Patty show um, a couple days ago, and we were talking about, it was President's Day, that was a President's Day show, so we were talking a lot about uh, who's your favorite president, least pres favorite president, you know, that type of thing. But one, one person called in and asked, um, because we were discussing the Biden trip to uh, Ukraine, of course, which had happened, we just found out about uh, on Monday of this week, on February 20th when that happened, and someone called in on the show and asked um, why President Biden wasn't in East Palestine, Ohio, instead of Kiev, Ukraine, because of the uh, the toxic train spill that took place there uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. And, you know, I, I wasn't – when I first heard the question, I thought it was rather strange. But I, after having a little bit of time to think about it, you know, my, my response is, look, we Ohio has a governor, don't they? I mean, they have Mike DeWine, a capable governor who was elected by popular vote. Um, he already called President Biden, who said, you know, the federal government will give you whatever you ask for uh, in terms of assistance for dealing with the, uh, the, the train derailment, which contained a lot of toxic chemicals and has really in, uh, disrupted the, the lives and endangered lives in the town of East Palestine, Ohio. And so I was a little confused about the question. Um, turns out that was that exact um, topic was the headline on Breitbart. Uh, there was a big headline on Breitbart. It was their top story on their website for a while on the 20th. Uh, why isn't President Biden in o East Palestine, Ohio, rather than Ukraine? So I, I, I assume the person who called in um, took that from the Breitbart show because it was just it was identically worded the way he the way he put it. Um, I don't really understand why anyone would think a train derailment in Ohio is more important than uh, a Russian president who wants to resurrect the Soviet Union. Um, if you feel that way, I guess I'll have to just sort of disagree, and, and hopefully I can convince you that um, 
the other perspective is the correct one. Uh, I'm not saying that the situation there in Ohio isn't serious. It is, and that it doesn't deserve uh, attention of state, local, and federal officials. It does, and it's already receiving that. And, you know, finding out exactly what caused that accident is going to take some time. You know, forensic analysis doesn't happen overnight. It'll take time to, to gather the facts and sift through the wreckage and figure out uh, what happened. You know, much like aircraft in, uh, mishaps or crashes, it, it can take a long time for all the forensic analysis to be completed so that the, the full accounting of the facts are known. But that's an issue for, for the governor of Ohio to deal with and for the EPA to deal with and for the other state local officials. And when they need federal assistance, then they've already begun that process. They will get it. And so I, I would argue that's, that's being handled and that, that sending the president of the United States there really doesn't serve any purpose except to give his critics the chance to uh, put his face on that disaster and, and call it the Biden disaster, which I suspect is what they want, which is why they're frustrated that he isn't there. Um, on the other hand, the situation in Ukraine, a lot of people ask, you know, well, is that really our business? You know, it's not our concern. We have too many problems here at home. And, and we certainly do. We certainly do have a lot on our plate here domestically to deal with. And, and I certainly agree that those domestic issues deserve um, the attention of our leaders and deserve their appropriate share of national resources. But it's not so easy. Uh, I wish it was. Unfortunately, it's not so easy to simply say, that the situation in Ukraine is not our fight. Well, we're not fighting there, first of all. There are no U.S. military personnel engaged in combat against Russian forces in Ukraine. So we should be clear about that. There may be a few there as advisors or a few there who are keeping track of or who are charged with keeping track of the arms and material that we've sent to Ukraine in an oversight capacity. But there are no U.S. combat forces engaged in shooting against the Russians right now. So we're not fighting in Ukraine. We are sending a large amount of aid and material and arms and supplies to the Ukrainian government. That's, that's definitely true. We are. And I think it's probably fair for critics to be concerned about where that stuff is going to end up and where it's going. Because there are track record on... Uh, managing those types of supply operations is not really good. You know, if you look at, um, you know, Afghanistan, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Afghanistan Reconstruction, that's uh, the acronym S-I-G-A-R, we call it SIGAR. SIGAR has been putting out reports for a long time, for many years, that um, we haven't done a good job of tracking and accounting for and managing arms and money that was sent to Afghanistan and, and the losses were in the billions and probably even in the tens of billions that we could not account for. So I, I certainly think it's fair to have concerns about where things are going uh, when we send billions of dollars to Ukraine. I'm not sure what the total is now. Um, it's probably closing in on $70 billion altogether uh, in, in terms of arms and assistance to the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people, which, by the way, if you actually look at what was allocated, most of it is actually um, aid and supplies. Uh, most of it's actually non-military. There is a, a substantial amount of arms and weaponry and, and military aid, of course, but the bulk of it actually is not. The bulk of it is actually food and supplies and other material that the Ukrainians would otherwise not be getting. And so we've sort of become, along with their European allies, the United States has sort of become Ukraine's lifeline in terms of the supplies that they're getting in order to keep them going in the fight against Russia. You know, a year ago, 
when the invasion kicked off, most people who pay attention to this kind of thing thought that the invasion would be over rather quickly and that Russia would prevail. It was not un- it would not be uncommon to find um, even folks with, with significant academic or military uh, training and experience who said, okay, we didn't really think they would actually go through with an invasion, but since they have, it's going to be over quickly. And a year later, we now know that has not turned out to be the case. And the primary reason is the, the resilience and the determination and the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people, but they have had a lot of help, and they would not have been able to continue that fight without Western supplies and uh, Western aid, both coming from Europe and the United States. So looking back on the year, what we were going to talk about with our guest on the VFRL podcast, which I can now talk about here, is what have we learned from all of that? You know, what, what have we seen transpire in the past year, and what does it tell us about where things are headed in the future? And so the first place I'd like to start in answering that is that's a, that's a very broad question, I know. Um, and I can't wait to hear Admiral Stavridis' answer to that in a couple of weeks when we get to talk to him on, on Accountable America. But my answer is, you know, history can provide us with a little bit of uh, a context. So we look back at the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, which was just prior to the outbreak of World War II. And during that conflict, a lot of countries, including Germany and Italy and at the time the Soviet Union, a lot of those countries sent new military equipment and new military machines into the Spanish Civil War, not just so that they could support the side that they wanted to support, but also because they wanted to test their new weapons. And so the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s became a battlefield laboratory where at the time cutting-edge military technology was tested under actual combat conditions. And it gave us a preview, even though a lot of people didn't recognize it at the time, it gave us a preview of what life, or rather what the war would look like, uh, what the next conflict was going to look like. And so I think something similar is happening in Ukraine today where you have new weapon systems that are being employed and tested while they're being sent uh, from the perspective of Europe and the United States. We're sending weapon systems to support the Ukrainians and, and fighting against the Russians. But we're also it's also an opportunity for us to test those weapon systems under actual combat conditions and see how they perform so that we can learn from that for our own future combat operations. And I believe we're, we're doing that. One aspect um, that really stands out, well, there's two that really stand out. The first is cyber warfare, and the second is uh, drones. You know, it was, it was said uh, a couple of times early on in the conflict, and I think the, there was a, hist- a, a renowned historian here in the United States who pointed out early that Twitter, that uh, rather Ukraine was winning on Twitter but losing on the battlefield uh, early in the conflict. And I think that was from a New Yorker article that was um, uh, published or republished just a couple weeks ago ahead of the uh, one-year anniversary. And so there's some truth to that at the, at the outset of the war. You know, Ukraine did a good job of convincing the European population and, and the government, at least, of the United States, if not a significant block of the American people, that supporting Ukraine's armed resistance against Russia was in their best interest. And I think that's true. I think that's a true argument because – if you look at what's happening in Russia today, and I'll give you a, an example of this from my personal experience, through the miracle of uh, modern technology, I have Facebook friends who live and work 
uh, in Russia who I talked to, and I, I'll, I'll leave their names out because they probably wouldn't want that, um, they wouldn't want that to be mentioned anywhere other than Facebook right now, and that, that tells you something. Um, two of those folks have left Russia, and they now one of them lives in Turkey. The other one also, I think, went to uh, Armenia, and they may have subsequently left for Turkey. And another was still in Russia, but uh, I've noticed that they, they don't want to talk about or post anything at all about the, the war in Ukraine. And I don't ask them any questions about it either because I don't want them to get in trouble. Uh, you know, the Russian parliament passed new legislation authorizing uh, Russian security forces to arrest and detain Russian citizens simply for uh, calling the uh, war in Ukraine a war. Right? If you don't, if you refer to it as anything other than a special military operation, which is what Putin calls it, you can be arrested and you could be thrown in jail uh, in Russia. So I, I understand their concerns, and, and I don't. The last thing I would ever want is to get any of them in trouble. Uh, so I, I've refrained from asking any questions or even bringing up the topic uh, for them uh, when it comes to uh, what's going on. But the fact that they don't want it, that they used to talk about things all the time and now they don't want to, is a pretty clear indicator that that things have changed. Uh, inside Russia, and that's one of the ways in which it's changed, that the Russian government has recognized um, that the Ukrainian success online and in cyberspace uh, has given Ukraine the ability to rally certain parts of public opinion to their side, most notably Europe and to a lesser extent uh, in the United States. And so they don't want Russian citizens helping Ukraine in that effort, which is one of the reasons why they have passed uh, the new legislations cracking down on dissent and on free speech uh, for Russian citizens online. Now, Russians are very clever, and they've found a lot of ways around that using different applications and platforms such as Telegram, and, which is very popular in Russia. By the way, Facebook's not very popular in Russia, by the way. I, less than 10% of people in Russia have actively use it. But Telegram, on the other hand, is very popular. Um, it's quite widely used. And so there's been a lot of ways for the Russian citizens have found ways around the restrictions that their government has placed on them. But that shows you the success the Ukrainians have had in the, uh, in the arena of public ideas, most notably the Internet, and that they've been successful at that. The other one that I mentioned that I want to talk about briefly was dr uh, drone warfare. And the drones have proven really useful uh, in a surveillance and reconnaissance and intelligence capacity, what we used to call ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance, ISR is what it stands for. Uh, and also for targeting and helping find and uh, eliminate targets. But that works both ways. You know, this is a conflict where both sides have uh, drones. And I know I've, I think I've talked about that before. Drone warfare has become quite uh, frequent and, and not uncommon uh, in the last 10 and 20 years. But this is, as far as I know, the first major conflict where both sides have a substantial drone capability that's been employed on this scale. And so I expect we're going to learn quite a few lessons about what, the, what new type of drones were then devised, what new type of tactics to go along with those drones have been employed, and what lessons that those have been learned uh, from actual application on the battlefield in Ukraine, both from the uh, NATO, American, and Ukrainian side, and the, uh, the Russian, Iranian, and potentially Chinese side. Now, China has not officially taken a stance on this. They have proclaimed uh, neutrality. But they've not condemned the Russian invasion either, and some of their officials have hinted that they might be open to sending uh, ass military assistance to the Russians in the future. As far as I know, they have not actually done that today. Uh, but if they did, that would certainly be a significant change 
to the circumstances in Ukraine itself. And when it comes to how the, the situation has played out over the past year, one of the biggest concerns we had was that the, the conflict could escalate uh, beyond the Ukrainian theater. And what we mean by that is that the war could spread to Europe or that it could spread to Central Asia or that it could spread somewhere else beyond the borders or the, pre, the pre-invasion borders of Ukraine. Um, the most likely place that would probably happen would be Poland. You know, there have already been Russian missile strikes right at the border or very close to the border of Poland. So an incident either on or near the Polish border is, is probably the most likely location geographically where you would see an incident that could trigger a wider war. Um, you know, an attack on Poland would invoke Article 5 of NATO, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all which could lead to a military response against Russia by NATO, and that would likely lead to a, a general war against uh, by, by NATO and the U.S. against Russia, which is not the case right now. That would certainly be uh, a concern. Turkey is another place where an escalation could happen with uh, ships passing through the Bosphorus Strait. That's another potential flashpoint that could lead to an escalation. But the more I thought about it, when I, when I looked at this, what's been happening over the last year, there's another concern I have when it comes to the escalation of things. And that is, you know, there's an old saying that uh, a frog in the pot, if you turn the temperature up on the, uh, the kettle, he'll jump right out because he doesn't want to get boiled. But if you turn the temperature up very gradually, slowly, just a degree at a time, uh, you know, that frog might not realize that he's being slowly cooked, even though the temperature is rising to a boil. And so my concern is that we're kind of watching a slow motion escalation take place um, where that things are getting more intense, things are spreading um, or threatening to spread beyond the Ukrainian theater, just not all at once, uh, and ju- not just not one with any one incident like an aircraft shoot down or a missile strike or an attack on a ship. Those are the type of things we expect. Um, but there could also be this uh, gradual um, intensification of the war so that it is escalating the temperature is going up but it's going up so slowly that we don't really notice it and if you think about what's happened in the past year I think there's a case to be made that that is in fact occurring I'll give you an example Uh, on the Russian side uh, after President Biden's uh, secret and uh, surprise visit to Kiev President Putin made a speech where he outlined some new policies for the Russian military most specifically that Russian forces serving in Ukraine would be entitled to two weeks of R&R, rest and relaxation, every six months, for every six months that they were in combat. That, that mirrors quite uh, closely, or it's very similar to the way that we used to do things, the U.S. military used to do things when we handled our rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, what matters about that is that it's an indication that on the Russian side, they're planning for a long conflict. They're, they're digging in for the long haul. You know, when you set up a plan to schedule regular rotations of troops out of the combat zone and back, back home to rest and then back into, the combat, uh, back into combat, you're expecting this to go on for a, a very long period of time. So that's an indication that things have intensified. Um, you know, the U.S. and, the, and Europe have, have poured aid and material and arms into Ukraine on a massive scale. That is also um, an example of how things ha- have escalated or intensified. Uh, Russia also announced that it would suspend participation in the START II treaty, which is a nuclear uh, arms limitation a treaty where we agree to allow inspectors from each other's countries to look at their nuclear sites. 
um, you know, you could argue that Russia had stopped participating in that a while ago. They, uh, they weren't allowing or they weren't actively allowing uh, American or European inspectors into their uh, nuclear sites anyway. But it's still a significant step. Um, it's another instance of Russia's president using veiled or, or, or concealed or, or thinly veiled threats of uh, nuclear attack um, or the use of nuclear weapons in the Ukrainian theater, which has also not happened. He, he's made plenty of uh, hints and threats about using those type of weapons, but has not actually done so yet. And so you, you, know, you take all that together, um, the, the amount of casualties, the amount of destruction that's been wreaked on Ukrainian cities and their population, the amount of casualties that Russia has suffered, the aid pouring in from Europe and the United States, the threat by Russia of, of nuclear weapons and the planning on the Russian side to, to set up rotations. And so what was you know once expected to be a few weeks or a few months of a conflict now could be settling into a phase of protracted warfare where this, this could, there could be active and ongoing widespread combat in Ukraine for years, years and years, uh, not just months, but years. And so that's the, uh, I think that's the, the principal danger beyond Ukraine um, at the moment that the conflict is going to drag on for years. Of course, that's a serious threat to Ukrainians themselves um, as their infrastructure has been systematically targeted by Russian forces. And as the onset of spring and warm weather comes, I think it's likely that we'll see both offensives to retake territory from the Ukrainian side and that we'll see counteroffensives or new operations from the Russians as well. Um, and so I would look for the, the spring and summer fighting to intensify and that areas that have under control of one or the other could change hands again uh, this summer as new offenses, new offensive operations and new counteroffensive op operations are undertaken by both sides. And that, that is also another escalation step um, in the fighting. So we're going to see this continue to, to gradually escalate. And uh, the leaders in our country and in Europe need to think about that. They need to think about the fact that, that if global security is that frog in the pot, you know, the temperature is slowly going up on that thing. And eventually it's going to hit the boiling point, whether we realize it or not. And it doesn't matter if you realize it, you know, once you're cooked, you're cooked. And that's what we don't want to happen. And so the big question is, how do we turn the temperature down? How do we protect Ukraine and Europe from Russian uh, attack without escalating the conflict into a broader war or a protracted war where this goes on for years and years? And I think it's, it's likely or at least it's possible that Russia could, could support that. They could sustain combat operations for a long time. They've, they've sustained them for a year. Um, a year that's been filled with a lot of problems and, and setbacks and, and certainly blunders, uh, but that's true of, of almost any military, and we certainly had our share of all of those things uh, when we undertook uh, combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, so I don't think it's surprising that we see that type of thing taking place uh, from Russian forces in Ukraine, and I think we'll see more of that uh, in the future. Is there a diplomatic solution? Can there be a... Um, a peace agreement. It doesn't look likely at the moment. Ukraine's president has, seems to feel that a negotiated settlement is less likely than victory over Russian forces, outright victory. And on the Russian side, the Russian president, Putin, has shown, given no, and he's in charge. He calls the shots. He makes the decisions. Um, so his, his opinion is the one that really carries the most weight in Russia. There's really no indication that he's interested in anything less than 
at least keeping the southeastern portions of Ukraine that are currently under control of the Russian military, or at least occupied by the Russian military. So all of those things add up to another year of, of conflict, another year of war, which is terrible for the Ukrainians, and it's not so great for Russia either, even though from what we're able to gather, um, you know, life inside of Russia has not been impacted as much as you might think. Of course, the American President Biden has called the sanctions on Russia unprecedented, yet it doesn't really appear that they, um, they're causing the level of disruption that, that we thought they would. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We really shouldn't. You know, we spent a good portion of the Cold War getting Russia wrong. So what does that all mean? Um, if we look at together, put it all together and think about this in terms of a, um, well, let's suppose this becomes a, pr a multi-year protracted conflict, which right now is, is frankly, that's where things are heading. It's looking like, you know, after this last year that neither side is willing to bend, both sides in the conflict have the resources and the will at the moment to continue fighting. So if this were to become a protracted multi-year uh, ongoing conflict in Ukraine, what would that mean for Europe, Asia, and for uh, the United States? The first thing I think it would mean is instability in the global economic market. And the reason for that is Russia, as a major ener energy supplier, has the ability to either throttle back or reduce and cut off its energy supplies to Europe, and that would have a ripple effect on the global economy, whether it's manufacturing or other sectors of the, uh, the global economy. So I think that's one thing that we could look for in a long-term conflict. And, and there could be periods where the energy supply is increased or decreased, and so there would be irregular intervals. There would be a, a mix-up or a, an alteration of the supply that would have a ripple effect further down the supply chain, uh, not just in Europe, but across Asia and, and finally here in the United States as well. The second thing I think that it would mean is, and this one may be a little bit counterintuitive if you think about it, but recently, as recently as last week, leaders in Poland have called for their military to become, uh, they have pledged to make their military the most powerful in Europe. And so they're buying lots of new weapon systems uh, and looking to expand the size and power of their own uh, military. France and Germany have also made similar statements and taken first steps, at least, in that direction. And even Britain has also made, uh, has indicated that it wants to move in, in a similar uh, path as well towards an increasing, uh, increasingly more powerful armament. So if the nations or the leading nations of Europe purchase and expand their military significantly over the next few years, that would lead to a, essentially lead to a rearmed Europe and uh, European nations, each one possessing much more powerful military forces than they currently do today. So if you think about that, you know, regardless of what may happen in Ukraine, the conflict goes on, some kind of stalemate, or there's a diplomatic settlement, or it finally ends with one side or the other declaring victory, regardless of all that, if you end up with a much more heavily armed Europe, those heavily armed European powers will probably, and by probably I mean, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, figure out that they may not need or want the United States to be there in Europe in such a large, uh, in such a sizable and forceful presence as it is today. So this this current wave, if it turns if it turns into a true wave of rearmament for Europe, uh, in you know the three to five year time frame as that comes to fruition, we may we may find ourselves with European allies who think that that our continued military presence is no longer necessary on their continent, and that could bring to an end 
um, the over the coming up on you know 80 year presence that the United States has had in Europe. We have a lot of mili- major military bases there. Uh, just as one example, you know, Ramstein, which nearby Kaiserslautern is home to the they call it K Town. Um, is home to the largest contingents of American citizens anywhere outside the U.S. I think it has something like 100,000 American people living there, and that's, that's in Germany. Uh, but, but K-Town is, is, is a you know, pretty thriving community of what we would call expats. And so if you think about that, that's another possible change that could happen. And I think there, uh, there's frankly a lot of Americans who probably would, would support that. Um, and it would, it would indeed be something that our, our own policymakers may have no choice if our European allies wanted us to leave, we would we would really have no choice but to do that. And that would have effects for the way that we project power around the world because Europe is essentially um, our major gateway to other places. And the Middle East is the most the easiest to um, the easiest example to cite. You know, when we want to move goods or, or troops or arms from here into the Middle East, when when I deployed to Iraq, we went through Europe, um, and you know we went to from here to Ramstein and then from Ramstein down to, uh, to, to near Baghdad. And, and when we had troops that were injured in battle, we, we would take them straight off the battlefield, load them under the back of a, uh, a transport and fly them right to Landstuhl, Germany for, for treatment, which is about a five, six hour flight. So it, if, if, if we were to lose those bases in Europe, it would have a significant impact on the United States military's ability to project power on a global scale if we had a diminished or, a, uh, or we lost those bases in Europe. And I'm not saying that that is going to happen. I'm simply saying it's something that could happen. It may be one of those unforeseen consequences lurking, you know, in the five to 10 year range down the road that we didn't think about in 2023 when we were rushing to help arm our European allies to uh, get them ready for a potential fight with Russia, which hopefully never comes. Um, But that's that's certainly where we're at. So I think we're looking at a protracted conflict that will have long-term implications for the global economy and for the United States uh, national security and our ability to project power globally um, across, the, uh, across the rest of the world. Those are the things that I see taking place um, with respect to the Ukraine conflict specifically. The major unknowns, or, or rather the biggest unknown, remains Russia. What's going on inside Russia? What's the thought process in the Russian government? Will the Russian people decide to take a stand against the war in Ukraine, or will they become more actively in support of the fighting that's going on there? I think that's really the biggest question mark when it comes to whether or not this this conflict will, will continue to, for several years or become protracted, and, and that's one that I don't have an answer to. And I don't think really that any of our, um, our intelligence agencies or, or folks that study this really have a, a, a for sure answer on that either. So, you know, the, the, the opinion of the Russian people and what they're going to do uh, towards the future is, I think, the biggest unknown. It's the biggest variable that could have the most significant impact on the situation uh, in Ukraine uh, as of 2023. So that'll be one we have to, to try to watch and try to understand or do a better job of assessing what are the attitudes and opinions um, and wants and desires of the Russian people. Because even though their government has taken steps to restrain their ability to express their opinions, um, the bottom line is, you know, Russia has a history. Uh, the Russian people have a history of rising up against regimes they don't like. And so I think uh, their current leaders are aware of that. And so it's a balancing act where they want to restrain popular opinion. Uh, they want to restrain the public from voicing too much opposition to the war in Ukraine, but they don't want to become so 
restrictive and so oppressive that they stir the Russian people to anger, and they end, we end up with a regime change uh, like we did at the, with, the, uh, with the fall of the Tsars or like we did with the fall of the Soviet Union because those are still outcomes that could happen uh, due to the conflict in Ukraine. It, it is a possibility that you could see a regime change in Russia, and who comes after Putin is anybody's guess. I don't think that's something that we really know for sure who would be next or even what kind of government that would be. And, and, and again, we'd be in a situation just like the, the fall of the Soviet Union where you've got a nuclear-armed nation now that's essentially headless. And so you have to wonder, you know, where are all those weapons? Who's controlling them? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to get shipped abroad or shipped out to, to groups that wouldn't hesitate to use them? It's, it's an unknown, and, it, and that it's in and of itself is a significant threat and concern for the United States of America, and we will have to keep an eye on that as we go forward. But I, I just wanted to touch on those things this week. Um, this show, Kentucky Caliber, we'll, we'll get back into a regular rotation with this probably later this spring once we get all the VFRL shows um, wrapped up because we'll only be releasing like once of those every other, every other week but we're doing a whole bunch of them all at once. And so that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And once we get finished with uh, production on those, I'll be able to, to have more time uh, to do this show, which I really like doing, but um, I'm just limited right now in terms of time and how much I can, I can use for this show. But that's all I wanted to talk about this week, and I hope everyone has a, uh, a great, great day, great spring. It's really warm today, so I hope everybody's enjoying the spring weather. It may not last. It usually doesn't. Uh, but we hope it does. And so thanks for listening and take care. Yeah, right.